Hey there, Kubrick fans. If you like what you hear during this episode, be sure to visit our website at thekubrickseries.com for more episodes and uncut interviews from the series. And you can also consider making a one-time or recurring monthly donation in any amount of your choosing if you'd like to support our podcast. That's thekubrickseries.com. Thank you. Over the course of 13 feature films, he examined a diverse range of topics and themes, from the glories and dangers of technology... I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. ...to the moral conflicts inherent in war. Whose side are you on, son? Our side, sir. How about getting with the program? He investigated the duality of man with unblinking honesty... With a fierce intelligence, he embraced the ambiguous, revealing deeper layers of truth with every viewing of his work. You've always been the caretaker. His films were of their time, ahead of their time, and timeless. Mr. President, I'm not saying we wouldn't get our hair must, but I do say no more than 10 to 20 million killed, tops. In this series, we will examine the works of Stanley Kubrick, works that will continue to challenge fascinate and exhilarate audiences for as long as there are movies. This is the Kubrick series. Episode one, the journey to strange love. Stanley Kubrick was born in Manhattan on July 26, 1928, to parents Jack and Gertrude. Stanley was fiercely curious and intelligent, though he maintained a poor academic record due to a general lack of interest. Jack, a doctor, was a particularly strong influence on son Stanley, perhaps sensing a need for an outlet that would occupy his aimless yet insatiable intellect. Jack introduced his son to what would become two of his life's most valued obsessions, chess and photography. The melding of the creative and the analytical would forever shape his unique artistry. Biographer Vincent Labruto. I would say, to be specific about it, and most accurate, is that he was a child prodigy as a still cameraman. I mean, he was a very accomplished photographer at a young age and you know while he's still in high school the the work is is really quite amazing kubrick himself spoke of the alluring appeal of photography in a 1966 interview with reporter jeremy bernstein one thing i think that uh, that per, that perhaps uh, helped me uh, get over being a misfit a school misfit and that is that um, i became interested in photography uh, about the same time 12 or 13 I started out by just, you know, getting a camera and learning how to take pictures and learning how to print pictures and learning how to build a dark room and learning how to do all the technical things and uh, so on and so on. And then finally trying to find out how you could uh, sell pictures and become a, you know, would it be possible to be a professional photographer? And it was a case of over a period of, say, from the age of 13 to uh, 17, you might say, uh, going through step by step by myself without anybody really helping me, the problem solving of being a photographer. So I think that photography, though it seemed like a hobby, might have been more valuable than uh, doing the proper things in school. At the age of 16, 
Kubrick snapped what would become one of the most iconic images of the era, following the death of President Roosevelt. The image caught the attention of Look magazine, who ran the photo in their coverage of this catastrophic event. Stanley had found work as a professional photographer following his graduation from high school, and in the process, he had discovered a sense of purpose in his life. Whether he was photographing showgirls or circus folk, he managed to capture both the grit and the glamour of daily life and began to shape entire narratives from a single click of the camera. His work as a still photographer would introduce a series of visual trademarks that would later carry over into his films. It's the, the, the sense of composition. In a Kubrick photograph, the image usually has something in the center, then something counterbalanced composition-wise on the right, and something compositionally balanced on the left. So you're looking at this like perfect image, mm. and one of the things you know that that I'm, I'm so happy about is that when I watch new movies, a lot of people are picking up on that. The you know the Kubrick framing. Following the Look photo essay titled "Prize Fighter," in which Kubrick portrayed the professional life of boxer Walter Cartier, he found the inspiration to step behind a motion picture camera for the first time for the documentary short film, Day of the Fight. This is a fighter, Walter Cartier. He's just moved up one more place in a line that may end with a championship. It's a hard life, but to him it's worth all the hardship and the risk. To him it's worth everything. Shot on a budget of $3,900, Day of the Fight was eventually sold to RKO. Empowered by his first taste of accomplishment as a filmmaker, Kubrick left Look magazine and made a living as a chess hustler. He continued to work in the field of documentary shorts until his father came through with financing for his first feature film, Fear and Desire. What happened? Where's Sidney and the girl? Kid must have gone out of his head. Girl's dead. Over there. He shot her. Where is he? He's gone. He yelled something about how the magician does it. How before he was something, and now he's a fish. Before I could stop him, he ran away towards the river. He kept laughing and screaming. We can't do anything about it now. Fear and desire marked Kubrick's first exploration of the phenomenon of war a theme that would continue to resonate in his future films. The film tells the story of four soldiers who are forced to crash-land their plane in foreign territory. The men hatch a plan to return to familiar ground, but those plans are complicated by the appearance of a woman they happen upon in the forest and the close proximity of an unnamed enemy squad. While Kubrick would later distance himself from the film, Deeming it an amateur effort, it proved a valuable stepping stone that led to his next project, the film noir crime thriller, Killer's Kiss. Listen, Dennis. Don't kill me. I don't want to die. I'll do anything you say. Anything. You love him, or don't you? 
I don't know. I don't think so. I've only known him two days. Two days? Please, Vinny. Please don't kill me. You said you were mad about me, remember? I'm just an old man and I smell bad, remember? I didn't mean it. You know I didn't mean it. Killer's Kiss returned Kubrick, at least peripherally, to the world of boxing as it followed the troubled love affair between a prize fighter and a dancer, and the jilted lover who sets out to destroy their union through violence. You and lover boy aren't gonna put me in the hot seat. You liked me once, remember? Remember how nice it was? It could be like that again, Vinny. It could be like that again. You're forgetting about him? I don't care about him. Look, baby, you could have had anything once, but no, you were too good for me. So you come up to my office and you get me mad. So I send the boys down to work over Loverboy. So they grab the wrong guy. So he bangs his head too hot on the sidewalk. So that makes me the sucker, huh? Not on your life, baby. Not on your life. Kubrick assumed duties as director, writer, producer, editor, and cinematographer on the film. Biographer Vincent Labrudo. One thing that a lot of people don't know is that he was um, originally thinking of being a cinematographer. He may have been the greatest cinematographer that ever lived, but we never would have had this director. While the film did not provide the financial or critical success that Kubrick might have hoped for, it did attract the adoration of James B. Harris. Harris was working on the sales and distribution side of the film business, and he was eager to further his career as a producer and director. He reached out to Kubrick and proposed a partnership, Harris-Kubrick Productions. Harris felt confident that he could find the necessary resources to make Kubrick's next film a reality. The challenge was in finding the right material for their first collaboration. Producer James B. Harris. We looked at each other and said, so what do we do now? And there was really nothing that we had. So after we had met at the end of the day, I went to a bookstore uh, on Fifth Avenue called Scribner's and uh, just looked through the the mystery and westerns and and found a book called Clean Break, which uh, I bought the book and and read it, and and it was about a robbery of a racetrack. And I thought, gee, this would make a terrific movie. I, I hope Stanley feels the same way. So the next day I gave it to him to read, and of course he responded favorably, and, and uh, I then acquired the, the film rights, and, and we had something to uh, start with. The Killing, based upon the novel Clean Break by Lionel White, tells the story of a horse-track heist in deliciously hard-boiled fashion. The film was notable for its crackerjack dialogue, jaw-dropping tracking shots, a wonderful palette of performances led by Sterling Hayden, and an unusually non-linear structure, which would later prove highly influential to artists like Quentin Tarantino. You like money. You got a great big dollar sign there where most women have a heart. So play it smart. Stay in character and you'll have money. Plenty of it. George will have it. He'll blow it all on you. Johnny, I'm no good for anybody else. I'm not pretty and I'm not very smart, so please don't leave me alone anymore. What makes you think or know that you're going to have several hundred thousand dollars? Because I do, I just can't talk about it, that's all. Not even to me, your little share. I shouldn't have even mentioned I was going to have it. It's not that I'm lying, I know I can trust you. But if these other guys these ever... These other guys? I can't talk about it, Cherry. You've been talking, now you spilled to her. Well, I didn't ask. What, do you think I'm crazy? I wouldn't jerk you, clown! The first thing we had to do was get a script, and, and Stanley 
uh, had uh, asked me if I knew of a, knew about a writer named Jim Thompson, which mm. which I hadn't really, and he he brought me up to date on Thompson's work and said we ought to try to get him to work with us on the screenplay, which we did. Uh, at one point, we got a call from from Sterling Hayden's agent saying that he read the script, really loved it, and would like to do it. So now we had at least a a, uh, a what would you would call an interest from an actor. I mean, it wasn't a firm commitment. But we went running to United Artists, uh, who had purchased Stanley's last picture, the, the uh, Killer's Kiss. Yeah, Killer's Kiss. They had, he had they had purchased that, and and at least we had an open door uh, to, to to talk to them. And mm. uh, we went running to them with the with the uh, fact that we had Sterling Hayden wanting to do this, and and they were kind of negative on that. Uh, but you know, our position was that he was good enough for John Huston to do the. Uh, Asphalt Jungle, why, why would he be good enough for us? And they said, well, he's done a lot of westerns that they're selling in flat rentals. And, and uh, you know, why, why why don't we go after a much bigger star? Which uh, we realized, would, you know, when you have one in the hand, yeah, it's, be- it's better than, than two in the bush. So mm-hmm. um, we uh, we insisted on going with Sterling, and they said, well, then you're going to have to be limited on your budget. Which means that they would only put up two hundred thousand dollars for us to do the killing. He said, if, if it's going to cost more, you're going to have to put it up yourself, and you're going to be in second position, which we get our money back first, and then you come next, mm-hmm. if you come at all. So, uh, but we did that, you know, rather than lose the deal, and, and I figured I, I I could scrape up uh, whatever it was going to cost above two hundred thousand, because we knew we couldn't do a, a picture that looked like anything, and it was two hundred thousand. Sterling Hayden alone was going to get forty thousand dollars. You know, so naturally mm. there was no money for us in there, and and uh, we had to do that picture for nothing, for as far as we were concerned. But I raised a, an additional hundred and thirty thousand to complete the picture, which cost three thirty, and uh, I really bought a career. That's what I did. I mean, what strikes me about the film is the unusual, the, the unusual structure uh, yeah. of it. Yeah. Uh, was that, that there all along, or? All along, that's that's what actually uh, intrigued both Kubrick and myself in wanting to do it as a film because we felt that structure was was unique and and uh, not seen too often in films. However, when we did the film that way, uh, we were criticized uh, at the at the previews and, and uh, showing the picture to, to friends and opinion makers and so forth. They all suggested that we re-edit the picture as a straight line story. Mm-hmm. Uh, saying that the audience is going to be antagonized and, and, and hostile because every time you get to the to the key point in the robbery, you flash back to see what each participant was doing to to get to that point. You know, we took the attitude: if enough people told you you're sick, you should lie down. And so we said, well, maybe we should we should play around with this thing and, and re-edit it. So we took the film back to New York and got an editing room and and spent the day putting it as a, a, back as a straight-line story. And when we got through, we, we we looked at each other and said, what are we doing? You know, the whole reason we bought the book and, and made the movie was because of this unique structure of flashbacks. Uh, we've got to stand by it and believe in it. And, and, and that's So we put it back the way that we believed it should be, with honoring the, the, the book, and delivered the picture, uh, as it is today, to United Artists. They, they thought it was very good. They accepted as as we delivered it, and, and um, I think that, that we did get ourselves a real justice uh, in not listening to all of the opinion makers. Author of Stanley Kubrick: A Narrative and Stylistic Analysis.
Mario Falsetto. He understood um, there are certain things that we associate with uh, with that kind of genre. You know, we we want to see the crime uh, prepared. We want to be follow the the uh, the criminal. We want to be be with them as they pull off the heist. You know, and uh, and there's some great great films in that genre. You know, or some wonderful films, uh, Rafifi or uh, Melville's. Uh, Rouge or something like that. I mean, there's some wonderful films in that genre. So I think when he when he approaches something, I think he thinks, well, yeah, I have to give sort of people uh, who are familiar with the genre. I can't let them down. I mean, they have to understand that you know there are you know that I, I I'm aware of things, but at the same time, I mean, he never does anything simply. I think he he's also speaking to, in a sense, he's speaking to the ages. You know, it's like well. I have to make something that will be around 50 years from now or 100 years from now. I, I have to make something that that pushes the, the boundaries of things that 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 will, you know, change the genre in some way, or that will be seen to be a, a, an original work of art. You know, so mm-hmm. something like The Killing, you know, really holds up today. Um, you know, even though it's you know it's a compact little film and it's only what its third feature. Um, really holds up and partly because of its, you know, sort of complex time structure, you know, it's, it's nonlinear time structure. Producer James B. Harris. The narration as well, which is, which is very interesting because it's kind of an omniscient, uh, uh, narrator. It feels, it feels very, uh, almost like a document in a way with that narration. Yeah. Three days later at 10:15 on a Tuesday morning, Johnny Clay began the final preparations. You want somebody to play with? Uh, no, no thanks. I'm just looking for a friend. How, how did that come into play? There's, there's one reason. Uh, maybe not be the only reason. Uh, Kubrick always felt very strongly about expositional dialogue. And he said that he hated that. He hated scenes where, where dialogue was really created in order to educate the audience as to, as to you know, needed or essential information. And he said it would be much better off using a narrator than to, to have to, to to write dialogue for actors to have to say all of that stuff. And uh, so Stanley was sort of inclined to to to, uh, to set the stage with with, uh, with dialogue rather than expositional dialogue. And the other thing was that at the time, you know, we were kind of impressed with the Louis de Rochemont films, the 13 Room Adeline and the House on 92nd yes. Street, something like that. Okay. And, but also documentaries, you know, Time Watches On was was big, and, and you know, they had that, that Louis Van Voorhees voice that, that we mm. liked a lot. Of course, he had such a strong visual sense, having come from the world of photography. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, so, so my understanding was that his his conversations with his cinematographer on that film, uh, I mean, he had to really set it straight that he had a vision in mind and knew how to accomplish it. Yeah, that wasn't that didn't sit too well with uh, with the cameraman on the killing. You know, his, his name was Lucian Ballard. Mm. Terrific, terrific uh, cameraman and uh, very experienced. So naturally, he resented uh, Kubrick's, uh, I guess, what he thought an overload of instructions and, and specifics that, that Stanley was looking for. You know, which Means that that he was sort of just like a a uh, you know taking taking cinematic di- uh, dictation. Do you have any other baggage? No, it was already checked through this morning. Oh, say, um, I uh, I want to carry that bag with me on the plane, please. 
Oh, I'm sorry, sir. It's much too large. I'll have to go check through his baggage. Oh, now, uh, let's, uh, let's be a little reasonable, huh? You, you can't tell me that the two of us traveling together are not entitled to one piece of luggage between us. Sir, we have no objection to one small bag or even two small bags. Well, we don't have anything else. It's already been checked through. I see. Sir, I, I don't know what else to suggest. It's very close to flight time. There are other passengers waiting. Perhaps the gentleman's worried about the contents of the bag. Is that it? We'd be very happy to insure it. More than happy. We'd be delighted. Now, no. if you just give me its <clears throat> estimated value and tell me what's in it. No, there's nothing in it. I mean, uh, just personal items, things like that. All right. All right. Check it through. Passengers. Thank you, sir. Now I'm sure you'll find the service to your complete Airline satisfaction. Flight 40, the New Englander. The killing concludes as a random moment of chance sabotages the meticulously planned heist. A dog scurries onto the path of an airport luggage truck, which carries the large suitcase filled with their $2 million of stolen loot. The driver swerves, and the suitcase falls to the ground, breaking open and scattering their millions into the wind. Critics Aaron Diaz and Keith Ulick. The killing is also the first time of Kubert having this emphatic, existential, ironic ending that he has on these films. Right, right. Um, I would say it, it, there seems to be a germination of it at the end of Killer's Kiss, you know, I, but I feel like it probably does come to fruition fully in the killing. Certainly that's there. And then, you know, I think after the killing, it's Path of Glory, right? Yeah. Which, uh, which really has a sucker punch of an ending, you know, that, that, uh, is, is in some ways tonally incongruous with what comes before and yet is the absolute perfect ending for everything in that, that that film does. Um, I mean, talk about like a really cold, harsh, brutal film that kind of gets this strange moment of humanity at the end. Now, gentlemen, we have a little special entertainment for you. Sort of a a little diversion, as it were. And as my wife always says, what is life without a little diversion? Now, gentlemen, I give you our latest acquisition from the enemy. From Germany. The conclusion of Kubrick's next film, Paths of Glory, harbors one of the most profoundly moving scenes of his career. Kirk Douglas plays Colonel Dax, the leader of the 701st Regiment during World War I, who's given the impossible task of leading his men into battle with the objective of taking over a fiercely defended German post. Riddled by casualties, and helplessly held down by showers of enemy gunfire, the colonel's team fails in their mission, much to the chagrin of their superiors. To set an example against what the superiors term as cowardice, they court-martial three of the soldiers, and extol a punishment of death by firing squad. Following these events, Colonel Dax looks upon members of his regiment as they crowd together at a pub. The proprietor of the pub brings forth a beautiful young German woman who trembles in fear as she attempts to sing for their entertainment. What begins in the crowd is a tone of rowdy disrespect. She does represent their enemy, after all. Soon becomes one of hushed and remorseful silence 
as the girl begins to sing her German folk song. Through the innocence of her trembling voice, they are all united in their shared sense of loss. Und als man ihm die Botschaft bracht, dass sein Herzliebchen im Sterben lag, da ließ er all sein Hab und Gut und eilte seinem Herzliebchen zu. Da ließ er all sein Hab und Gut und eilte seinem Herzliebchen zu. Ach, bitte, Mutter, bring ein Licht, mein Liebchen stirbt, ich seh es nicht. Das The actress portraying the German singer, Christiane, would soon become Kubrick's wife of 41 years until his death. Producer James B. Harris. Stanley had gone over to, to uh, Munich ahead of me. I, I waited and I, I came over closer when Kurt came over. And when I got over there, he had this idea about a punctuation to the film. Uh, and he also knew a girl he was taking out. It would be perfect to do it. And, and I smelt a rat there, you know. I just felt, <laughs> I said, oh, boy. And I said, I can't believe you do this. You know, I, you know, the Stanley Kubrick I know would never, never, ever uh, do anything uh, to the film in order to, to impress a, a girl or, or, or do a favor for somebody. You know, Stanley was strictly, totally dedicated to the film being his and he said, no, it's not that at all. He said, I think the film needs a, a punctuation. I think that this would be the uh, perfect. And I, I said, I, I just, I, I guess I was so concerned about the fact that, that, that the fact that he was, he was romantically involved with Christiana was, was, you know, sort of put me on the wrong track. And, and I objected to it and didn't think that he should do it. And so the usual discussion with Stanley and I, where he says, in, well, you can't, you, you, you have nothing to lose. He puts it this way. He said, look, let's shoot the scene. Let's do the scene. If you don't like it, if you don't think it works, we won't use it. Well, you can't be more fair than that, you know. <laughs> and as it turned out, I, I was standing, when we were shooting the scene, I got so involved in it that I was standing there sort of leading the men in the, in the singing, you know, so, sort of as a, as a conductor as the men were singing back to, to Christiana. Uh, I mean, he so convinced me when, when I saw it actually taking place, how right he was about it, that, that um, I, I couldn't believe that I, that I was against the idea of it to begin with. It's dead on, but that, that ending, I mean, anybody that sees it, I, I don't care what they think about the movie, uh, half of the time, even if they, they may be middling on the film, the ending always gets them. <laughs> always gets them. Producer of the Criterion Collection release of Paths of Glory, Curtis Cho. I think it is something where this is where everything is formulated, uh, the dark sense of humor, the distinctive visual style, the moving camera. Uh, if you look at it, you see everything from Full Metal Jacket to The Shining in it. Uh, you see a lot of thematic and visual obsessions of his. You know, I, 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 I like The Killing a great deal, but I, this is the one where the, the emotional 
content of it. And this is something that I think a lot of people end up taking Cooper to task for unfairly. I think his movies are actually very emotionally involving, but a lot of people don't feel that. But the emotion in this movie is as potent as the style. Biographer Vincent Labruto. Paths of Glory is a film that I saw, I guess I was 21, I just started uh, film school 2021, and I tell people that all the time, and I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you this right now, is that I wouldn't be talking to you now if it wasn't for that film. The, the way that Kirk Douglas looks when they're going in the trenches, I've never seen anything like that. I just, uh, I remember being mesmerized. Producer James B. Harris. What strikes me about these films that that you did in collaboration, Mr. Kubrick, and obviously the the remaining films in Mr. Kubrick's uh, career, uh, they're all very uh, risky, uh, provocative. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. we talked about the nonlinear structure of the killing, and and obviously Lolita is is a, yeah. was a big ball of controversy, but Passive Glory was 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 risky too in its approach, wasn't it? Yeah, well, you know, the, aside from that last scene, which was an added add-on, uh, which with Christiana doing that singing to the troops, there are no women in the picture. Uh, the, the men are all executed <clears throat> for, for, you know, a total injustice. But we, and and we had to we had to deal with that too. The 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 this is distributed. One of the men saved in the end, and um, you know, when you get into issues like that, it, it, it's a question of why are we making the movie? We're trying to make a point that terrible things happen in war. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you have one, uh, you know, the usual Hollywood happy ending where somebody saves the day and, and the men aren't executed, you have then you have no miscarriage of justice, and and uh, you have to, you know, you, you look at yourself and say, why are we making this film? It doesn't make any point. Uh, uh, so yes, so that put us in in another uh, tough situation where we had to defend. The, the downbeat ending of the picture in order to 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 say that, that that's what the picture's about. You know, it's not a flag waver, and it's not a, a picture with women in it. There's no romance. And, and meanwhile, Paz of Glory, I mean, it's 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 very respectful to the soldiers yeah. and to the impossible situation that they find themselves in. Yeah. yeah. Well, bad things bad things happen in war. You know. I mean, People who, who you wouldn't think, uh, we, 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 you, you have to look at the, at the bottom line, really, and, and in so many cases, the, the, uh, the end justifies the means. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and, and the French, you look at it from their position, they had men deserting, and they had to set examples to, to, to try to keep people from deserting, and, and uh, um, those things happen in war, and they had to sacrifice three men, uh, you know, as the story goes in Paz of War, in order to make the point that uh, when an attack fails, uh, they, they try to, to make it seem as if it was a cowardice and, and that there was no, um, you know, that they, they were deserting in, in, this, in the face of action and so forth, which is punishable by death. But they couldn't specify any particular people, so they picked three at random, you know, in order to make the point. So terrible things do happen in war, uh, and we wanted to bring that out, that, that there should be no war. Director of Film Studies at Clemson University, R. Barton Palmer. What better war to pick than, than the First World War with uh, contrasting um, states of motion and stalemate? Um, where, where, where the attack moves forward, where, where the camera movement 
up and down the trench before the attack suggests the possibility of action. And then the tracking scenes across the battlefield all mm. suggest a movement forward. And then it all winds up uh, moving backward and nothing changes. I think that, that that's very Kubrickian, uh, yeah. very, very uh, uh, bitter comment on the pointlessness of human action. No wonder the French got upset about this. I mean, it it, it, it picks them out um, as uh, being uh, uh, just uh, pointless practitioners of, of a way of waging war that uh, is defeated from the outset. There seems to be no point to anything. And, of course, it... It, it leaves out, and this is an interesting thing for me, watching this film, it leaves out the actual conditions of World War One, where the Germans are occupying the northern third of France. French can't leave them there. They have to do something, and yet what they do doesn't work. But you know, Coop doesn't want to see it quite that way. He wants to abstract this particular offensive from the larger context of the war and to present it as a, in a sort of epitomizing way uh, as suggesting the failure of human attention. And um, you are meant, I think, as, uh, as a viewer to feel more outrage at, at what happens uh, with the collective punishment of the men, the regiment that uh, fails to take the German uh, fortifications. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is a sort of typical Hollywood film with a typical Hollywood hero, Kirk Douglas, uh, functioning as our representative in the story. And he's he's everything good. He's a part of the system. He's a courageous soldier. He's obedient to orders. And at the same time, he sees how the system he's serving is uh, rotten and corrupt. Had to be done. France cannot afford to have fools guiding her military destiny. I'm grateful to you, Dax, for having brought this matter to my attention. Colonel Dax, how would you like your General Miro's job? His what, sir? His job. Let me get this straight, sir. You're offering me General Miro's command? Come, come, Colonel Dax, don't overdo the surprise. You've been after the job from the start. We all know that, my boy. I may be many things, sir. I'm not your boy. Well, I certainly didn't mean to imply any biological relationship. I'm not your boy in any sense. You're trying to provoke me, Colonel? Well, why should I want to do that? Exactly. It would be a pity to lose your promotion before you get it. A promotion you have so very carefully planned for. Hmm. Sir, would you like me to suggest what you can do with that promotion? Colonel Dax! You will apologize at once or I shall be placed under arrest. Kirk Douglas, I, I, I've seen him quoted as saying that he... He very much believed in the material, and, and while he thought that perhaps the film wouldn't be popular, as of course it is, we're talking about it so many years years after the yeah. fact, but he said, nevertheless, we have to make this. I mean, he single-handedly made, made it possible that we got the picture made. We, he was our first choice to play Colonel Dax. Mm. And unfortunately, he was uh, committed to do a stage play or to be involved in a stage play and wasn't available, as much as he liked the script. And uh, believe it or not, we couldn't find anybody else to play the part. You know, it was just, I guess it was deemed as a, as a suicidal 
enterprise for an actor, you know, to sign up to play a picture that was so downbeat and, and, and non-commercial. So we really couldn't get anybody. Gregory Peck wanted to do it, but he wasn't available for 18 months or some some real outlandish amount of time that we didn't want to wait. Uh, and and as luck would have it, uh, Kirk uh, somehow fell out of the, the whole Broadway play situation and was suddenly available. I mean, that mm. telephone call about Kirk suddenly being available and knowing how much he wanted, I'd like the script, uh, was a lifesaver for us. And with his clout, you know, he was a major star, he was able to sort of blackjack United Artists into, into making the film because he had a commitment to do a film called uh, The uh, Viking. Uh, and that uh, UA was committed to do that. And he said that if they wouldn't do Pairs of Glory, you know, he'd take the Viking somewhere else. As you as you observed his uh, interaction with with actors... Uh, I mean, what, what kind of observations did you make about that dynamic? I, uh, well, through the years, uh, and through the films, uh, he always seemed to accomplish what he wanted in terms of getting the actors to, to, to abide by or deliver his, his, his request or his instructions. And he earned it with, with their respect for him. Paths of Glory actor Richard Anderson. If I'd have to add up Stanley, he's in... He, he does not give up. I got a call uh, from a friend of mine says that he met Kubrick and he wanted to meet me, so he came right to my place and we talked movies for about four hours. <laughs> that was all. And then three weeks later, he called and told me he's going to start a picture in Germany. Would I like to do it? And I said, well, send me a script. And that was it. And I did meet him. I found him to be extremely bright. And um, yeah, he was all movies. You know, I could see it. I went early. He asked me to come over early. And I'll, I'll, I'll never forget the first day we went out. We, we were walking out the first day. He was trying to find a, a way to, uh, to start the movie. And so he looked at this spot. He says, dig a trench. <laughs> first scene in the, in, the, in the picture where... Uh, do you remember? It starts out where you come out of a, an automobile. You know, we go inside. Uh, inside and we're, we were meeting with... Um, with uh, Adolf Manchu comes in uh, to, to see uh, George McCready, the general that I was uh, working for, and asked uh, the general McCready to take the anthill. So in that scene, um, he uh, he did that scene with with um, Manchu saying, uh, "Captain Nichols, yes, sir." Order 75s to commence firing on our own positions. Captain, do you fail to comprehend the meaning of my order? No, sir, but I respectfully ask the Captain, do you fail to comprehend the meaning of my order? No, sir. Then carry it out, Captain. Yes, sir. If you recall the scene, they walk away from the camera and go curving left and right around pillars, and, you know, and it was a, a one-shot affair. And it came back. And uh, they had some time doing that. It was, you know, they had to break for lunch and come back and do it again. And uh, finally he said, print, and he turned to me. And he said, I was in the shot, by the way. Uh, he turned to me and says, uh, I'm honoring this, uh, this shot I'm doing for Max Ophels. Mm. Uh, he died today. 
It's difficult to imagine that such an original filmmaker could have creative influences that helped to inspire and shape their unique artistic voice, especially when that filmmaker has achieved the near-mythic status of a Kubrick. But if there was one filmmaker who wielded the most influence over Kubrick, it was Max Ophuls. You can feel it most profoundly in his meticulous attention to detail and in the gliding, intoxicating dance of his camera. But the connections don't end there. Ophel's first major critical success was titled Libelay, based upon a play by Arthur Schnitzler, the same writer who penned Trom Novell, the story that would later inform Kubrick's final work, Eyes Wide Shut. The last completed Ophel's film was titled Lola Montez, and featured a dynamic performance from Peter Ustinov, the acclaimed and versatile actor who would go on to win his first Oscar for his supporting performance in Kubrick's next film following Paths of Glory. Justice Killer's Kiss had attracted the attention of James B. Harris, and the killing had lured the interest of Kirk Douglas. Paths of Glory led to one of the great what-ifs of Kubrick's career, when it inspired the adoration of none other than Marlon Brando. Brando came to Kubrick with an idea for a new film, a western, and they swiftly brought in future auteur Sam Peckinpah to author the screenplay. The clash of these overwhelming personalities ultimately kept this particular collaboration from happening, though Brando would later helm the project himself and title it One-Eyed Jacks. Kubrick might have been disappointed but he certainly wasn't deterred, because he and Harris had already found their next dream project, Lolita, based on Vladimir Nabokov's controversial novel. But before that project could begin, fate, in the form of Kirk Douglas, stepped in with another. Nine Roman armies have been destroyed by Spartacus. Spartacus, a motion picture unequaled in the entire history of filmmaking, unlikely ever to be surpassed in the tenderness and beauty of its love story. Nothing was spared to make Spartacus the superb achievement it is. Neither time, nor money, nor talent. For in Spartacus, you will see the finest cast ever assembled relive history's most exciting and inspiring drama. Starring Kirk Douglas as Spartacus, slave, gladiator, invincible fighter. Laurence Olivier as Crassus, symbol of Rome's majesty and might. I'm not after glory. I'm after Spartacus. Gene Simmons as the slave Arinia, whose body was bought and sold, but whose love enveloped Spartacus with a radiance few men have known. Charles Lawton as Gracchus, the leader of the Roman Senate. Peter Ustinov as Batiatus, shrewd and devious dealer in human flesh. John Gavin as Julius Caesar, ambitious staff officer. And Tony Curtis as Antoninus, who loved Spartacus like a brother. In the powerful story of the gladiator rebel who sprang from slavery, to challenge the awesome might of Imperial Rome. The symbol of the Senate, all the power of Rome. 
Even given the diversity of Kubrick's films, Spartacus is a bit of an anomaly, for it was the first and only time he lacked control over the development of the production. Producer James B. Harris. We had an obligation to Kurt because in order to, to get him to do Pairs of Glory, I mean, he wanted to do it, but he would only do it if we signed a, a multiple picture contract with him to make pictures for his company. So we had that mm. hanging over our heads. No, it, it was the fact that, that he got in trouble on, on uh, the first few days of shooting. He was dissatisfied with, with the director that he was using. And... Uh, he uh, evidently had enough uh, respect for Stanley and, and was impressed enough with having done Paz the Glory that uh, he came to, to us and, and, and said that he would like Stanley to replace him. And would we consider doing this? Well, it gave me an opportunity to negotiate with, with, with uh, Kurt on, uh, because our next picture was going to be Lolita. Hmm. And, uh, and we had made a deal with Kurt in order to... to so to get out of the, this, this, I don't know, we thought it was a slave contract to make multiple pictures. Actually, it was like five pictures of only, and he would only be in two of them. So we'd have to make three other pictures for his company. I mean, that's almost a lifetime of work to, to, to yeah. And so I made a deal with him that if he, if, that first of all, I'd like him to waive Lolita, you know, that, that he should not participate in that at all. And he was glad to do that because he really thought that that picture was not makeable. He didn't think that we could survive the censorship problems, and he was glad to wave that picture away from from being part of of a commitment to him. And we needed the money, frankly, to to uh, to keep our company going. So it wasn't a question of an obligation, more of a question that started with Kirk really wanting Stanley uh, to replace. Uh, uh, was it Anthony Mann or was it somebody? Yeah, Anthony Mann. Mann. Yes, sir. I'm Spartacus. 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 You know, when Stanley got into uh, into it, he, he he changed a lot of stuff. I mean, there was no battle scene in that script. And um, he did bring Gene Simmons into the picture, mm-hmm. which he didn't, it didn't exist. He, had, he replaced whoever they had. And uh, he was right about the battle scenes, and they said they couldn't afford them. And then Stanley says, well, why can't we go to a country where we can afford it? Like Spain, we have a lot of extras that are uh, expensive. And he talked them into actually doing a, you know, a big, big battle scene. He said, how can you make a picture like this without a big battle scene? And they, they were going to do it in a surreal way with, with the river floating, with helmets floating in the river with blood and, and you know, sort of re, the result of a battle. Uh, and Stanley said, you can't get away with that. It just, and he was right. You know, the picture turned out to be one of the better big spectacle movies. And, yeah. Uh, and, and the battle scene sure helped. Did he find that a valuable experience it, or w- he wasn't entirely happy with no, that experience no. was he well because it was the first picture that that, that he made the way you know so was, you know let's say we start with the killing pairs of glory these two pictures we made completely with no interference from anybody uh, yeah we called all the shots we did everything now he's actually going to work for a producer 
you know, and when uh, you know the the difference being, I mean, Kirk is a major major movie star, and he's the producer of the film, uh, and Stanley has to direct him. Uh, when I produced with Stanley, I mean, we were best friends, we were partners, we, you know, we were buddies, we were making a movie together. You know, with Stirk, 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 Kirk is more of an adversary in in this case, mm-hmm. and it, it was no fun making the picture. Uh, you know, sort of Kirk. Including the Stanley, uh, you know, and there's two sides to every story, of course. But according to Stanley, you know, Kirk really made his presence felt as the producer, which which uh, puts Stanley in a position of being, uh, you know, work, an employee, which which he yeah. was actually. But but you know, it, it it shouldn't be that way. I mean, we're all employees of our own corporations or employees when you make a movie, but. The relationship is is not is not really employer employee more of working together. You know, it's it's a collaborative effort. But, mm. but Kirk was you know a very dominating type of a person, and, and um, it, it just didn't sit well with Stanley. So it was an experience that he was glad to have behind him. Kubrick was a young man of 32 when Spartacus was released, and if there was any doubt before. The film certainly proved once and for all that he could work comfortably within the realms of a studio epic and masterfully direct the greatest actors of the era. The success of the film carried over into award season, as Spartacus would tie with Barry Lyndon for the most Oscar wins among Kubrick's films. Still, many Kubrick fans overlook the film because it represents a temporary derailing of his auteur status. Even so, Spartacus does harbor several trademark Kubrickian flourishes. Critics, Keith Ulick and Aaron Adediaz. Yeah, no, it's funny, because uh, Spartacus, I mean, in its way, does feel like a work for hire, and yet things will peek through. Like I feel it in the in the bigness of Lawton's character, uh, Lawton's character, Charles Lawton. Um, and his, uh, you know, and his sort of stealing supporting role, which I mean, Lawton was doing by that point, certainly between like this for the prosecution and then eventually advising consent. And, you know, I mean, he became, a, he became the go-to guy, go-to guy for that. And he was always, pretty much always like incredible doing that. I guess I see Kubrick more attracted to you know, someone, someone like Olivier in that film, as opposed, or Olivier's character, as opposed to to Spartacus. Spartacus is kind of like, I'd say, a rather dull hero type, and you know, it's kind of like after what he does, after what Kubrick does with Kirk Douglas and in Path of Glory, kind of making him, you know, a bit, a bit too much of the idealist in a sense, so that so that he's not entirely the hero. It's like everybody in that movie has some weird kind of flaw to them and everything. And I think there's something a bit more uh, um, flat about Spartacus. Um, you know, compelling perhaps because Douglas is a compelling presence. I mean, God knows he yells and it's kind of like, oh, hello, Kirk. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's it's just something you you can't avoid, but. Um, you remember it for all the different personalities who were involved. You remember it for Douglas. You remember it for Dalton Trumbo and the breaking of the blacklist. You remember, uh, you, you remember it for some, some Kubrickian flourishes here and there, but it's really not a full Kubrick film. You can see in some of those battle scenes and, and, and Kubrick is kind of doing almost like a primer on a, you know, choreography of big scenes that he right. would really make his own in something like Barry Lyndon. Biographer. 
Vincent Labrudo. The debacle that he had on uh, Spartacus. Mm-hmm. I mean, he just swore that this would never happen to him again. And then he set up, set up shop in England and a new way of, of working. After Spartacus, Kubrick left the Hollywood life behind. As he traveled to England for his next film, and wound up stationed there for the rest of his life. My uh, flowers win prizes around here. <laughs> They're the talk of the neighborhood. Voila! My yellow roses, my, oh, my daughter. Uh, darling, turn that down, please. I can offer you a comfortable home, a sunny garden, a congenial atmosphere. My cherry pies. Well, uh, we haven't discussed uh, how much. Oh, uh, something nominal, let's say. uh, uh, 200 a month. Yes, that's very... Including meals and uh, late snacks, etc. That's very reasonable. (laughs) Well, it's it's, it's, it's very nice. Uh, You couldn't find better value in West Ramsdale. Well, when would it be convenient for you to have me move in? Well, right now. I mean, it would be silly for you to go to a hotel, monsieur. Well, both my bags are in the taxi. <laughs> yeah, a very persuasive salesman, Mrs. Thank Davis. you. What was the decisive factor? Uh, my garden? I think it was your cherry pies. Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita was first published in 1955. It is now known as one of the great novels of the 20th century, but then, for every critic who praised its sumptuous language and provocative themes and characters, many others were scandalized by it, deeming it pornographic. The story follows Humbert Humbert, a literary scholar who moves to a small town to find some solitude to write. He rents a room in a quaint house occupied by Charlotte Hayes, a boisterous and aggressively uncultured widow, and Charlotte's daughter, Lolita, a 12-year-old nymphette in waiting. Humbert is immediately taken with Lolita and tolerates her mother, Charlotte, even going as far as marrying her just so he could be close to Lolita. When Charlotte is killed in a freak accident, Humbert assumes the role of parent, a role that eventually crumbles under Humbert's feelings of lust and jealousy, particularly when a questionable figure named Claire Quilty comes into their lives and begins to spin a tantalizing web of influence over the girl. Nabokov adapted his novel into a screenplay, which Kubrick then took and altered enormously to reflect a more ambiguous tone. Producer, James B. Harris. Um, If you've read the book, you notice that Humbert Humbert had a a history of being interested in in little girls. Uh, Mm -hmm. Going all the way back to his childhood, and and we decided that there would be no, uh, nothing about him to indicate that he had a, 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 uh, a predisposition for, for, young girls, that this was a single girl that he happened to stumble upon and, 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 and just, just got, uh, uh, he, he fell in love with. 
So, yeah. so he didn't have a background. You know, he was not a, a child molester to begin with. By removing this backstory, which had established a tragic motivation behind Humbert's attraction to preteen girls, Kubrick again embraced the ambiguity that so often characterized his work. As a result, Kubrick's Humbert, played by James Mason, is equal parts sensitive, charming, haunted, and devious. Someone the audience is torn between finding despicable and sympathetic. But that's not the only alteration Kubrick made to the book. Naturally, we couldn't make the, the, the picture the, the way the book was because she was a 12-year-old in the book. I mean, mm -hmm. she was a, you know, obviously a child. We had to have somebody that, that at least uh, got us over the, the business of it being uh, obscene and, and uh, outlandish. It, 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 do you remember Patty McCormick in The, in the Bad Seed? Yes. I don't that. I mean, there's an example of a child, you know. I mean, if you if you played it like that, like like using somebody that's like 12 years old, it would be disgusting, you know. So Sue Lyon was actually only 14, but she looked like a sex object. I mean, she did definitely look like like you would not think that that the person is demented or, or you know, a, you know, a, a criminal if if he had a, a, an affair with her. Critic. Keith Ulick. And, and, and now, I mean, people say you look at it and it looks tam, Sue Lyon is too old or something like that, but it's still got, that movie still has kick to it. I mean, and a lot of it has to do with Mason and, and Shelley Winters. And I would say even Sue Lyon, who's probably one of the, one of the, one of the more interesting Kubrick blanks. You know, there, there, there often is a blank character in Kubrick. Sometimes there's a lead, like, uh, Ryan O'Neill in Mary mm -hmm. Linden or, uh, Tom Cruise kind of treads both in a way in Eyes Wide Shut. Or, or, you know, he has really big people in the lead, like Jack Nicholson in The Shining, you know, big performance in that. Or, um, you know, uh, or James, McDowell, I would say, yeah. Yeah, McDowell, obviously in Cockroach Gardens. And I would even say James Mason in, uh, in Lolita. There's something really primal about James Mason and how he moves from this very urbane, you know, uh, urbane prof professorial type to this really uh, jealous and, uh, and, and out for blood kind of, you know, character. And of course he's perfectly matched in that way with, um, with Peter Sellers, who's incredible in the film as mm. Quilty. And, and they're all revolving around this, this girl who you're kind of looking at and you're like, what is, you know, in a way it's kind of, and I guess some people see it as a failure. It's like, what, what do they all see in her? And yet it's kind of like, I think that's one of the, kind of the film's genius in a way is that the men you you see you see her through the men rather than see her really and and it's kind of it's, it is it is this weird effect if you're viewing her through this prism of the men and so then they, they see her as an ideal and they see her not as an ideal and yet she still comes across as like this doll that is being dressed up it's kind of like the ultimate uh, satirical joke in a way you know, on, yeah. on, on, on really, I guess, you know, uh, the sex film and the eroticism of the 60s films that was there and stuff. I mean, and I guess, you know, Antonioni would be addressing it in, in, in his own kind of way in, um, in, in his great movies. You know, that, that whole kind of early to mid 60s period was a, was a haven for that, you know, uh, and, you know, La Dolce Vita and, you know, all these, all, all these films that were kind of breaking the 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 sexual taboos and stuff and Kubrick is kind of doing that but having a, a satirical a satirical laugh at it as well. Film analyst Eric 
Fearston. You said that Lolita was the first 70s film, and it feels like the first 70s film. What do you mean by that? Well, I think in um, up until, even in, as far as the 60s, like Easy Rider and stuff, there was sort of an establishment that was being rebelled against, and maybe it was sort of shown as faulty or something, but, you know, as far back as the 50s and even the early 60s, there was, you know, a consideration that, you know, the world was all right, that America had decent rulers and that, you know, there was a, a functionality. You could, you could believe in your government, you know. It's like Vietnam sort of shook that up and made the young people realize they couldn't, you know, trust their their elders in government and so forth. And so in the 70s, you've got characters like Travis Bickle and so forth who are just sort of, you know, navigating a completely chaotic, system where nobody seems to be in charge and they're technically the the power, you know, the power source, but they're, you know, completely impotent and non-trustworthy, even as narrators. And I think you've got that in Lolita where, you know, the, the most mature, which, you know, an italic character is James Mason who kind of represents this patriarchal power and, you know, a sort of censoring guiding hands and he you know the least trustworthy slimiest character in the film mm-hmm. you're sort of left realizing you know there's nobody you can trust producer james b harris we we had uh, a, a real problem with the censorship in the in the beginning mm-hmm. and and so we engaged a, a uh, sort of a, what you call a technical advisor to keep us uh on the right track um it was it was uh Gentleman that actually had had written the code seal, uh, hmm. Martin Quigley, his name was, and um, he had he had, you know, there was a code. We didn't have the classification in those days. You either got the code seal from the MPAA or you didn't. If you didn't get the code seal, you you probably not going to get your picture distributed. And uh, you know, you subscribe, you you submit the script to them in the beginning, and they give you guidelines and things. If you want to get a code seal, you have to do this and that. But you know something, we didn't have that much trouble when it comes down to it because we never approached the film uh, as anything other than a bizarre love story. You know, we mm. said that, that all of the great love stories in, in throughout the years are that the lovers can't get together, you know, like in Romeo and Juliet. You know, there all of those reasons uh, of, of a class distinction, religious reasons, people being married and can't get together because... You, you, you know, like the postman always rings twice. You got the problem. They got to get rid of the husband. We did the the last thing that hadn't been dealt with was the the the, the fact of, of the difference in ages. And yeah. we thought, why not make that, uh, you know, a love story where the difference in ages turns out to be the thing that excommunicates the lovers and makes it impossible for them to get together. We decided that <clears throat> we had the book working for us. We knew that the audiences would have read the book or knew or knew all about it. And that they'll come into the audience, come into the theater, with the predisposition of thinking that Humbert Humbert was an evil, dirty old man, and that we wanted him to them to leave the theater thinking he was the most innocent man in the piece. And that's the way we played it. You you didn't feel at all stifled creatively because of the the censorship issue. No, no, because because we didn't plan or ever want to do anything that was explicit. We didn't want to see them. You know, actually going at it in bed together. We, I mean, that would have been. I mean, it just would have taken away from the way we wanted to tell the story. We just wanted mm-hmm. to see 
you know, that, that this man isn't going to destroy himself because of the inability for him to, to get through to, a, to a, a young teenager, you know. Film analyst Eric Fierston. You know, the whole concept of, you know, did they or didn't they hook up was such a, a big deal. It was sort of like, you know, you had to have, I mean, you could sort of suggest that they hooked up, but at the same time you had to, like, have no evidence that they had hooked up. And, and I'm like, oh, that's the code, you know. It's like, but um, in this case, with Lolita, there's a character who kind of represents a censor or like an authority figure who's mad to try to get into the pants of this younger girl who's uh, kind of demands to know, you know, did they or didn't they hook up? In this case, it's not like for Lolita, the hotel scene, but more like the, the subsequent jealousy with Claire Quilty. What's going on, you know? Who is, you know, what's happening while Lolita's not around? Well, I don't, while, this, while the camera is not, like, on her, per se, you know, and there's no right answer, and that's what ultimately destroys, like, James Mason. But that was fascinating, this critique of the code and of moralist. He uses uh, Humbert's jealousy in the same way that you would use the censors and sort of establishes himself as the Claire Quilty, like, you know, like, trickster figure, if you will, because, um... You know, if you look at the history of, of of these cinema, especially like, you know, pre-code cinema when they got all those sort of flashy, you know, Broadway theater writers to come in and write dialogue for the new sound films, they were like, okay, well, we're not allowed to outright say these people hooked up and had sex, but we can use all sorts of double entendres and, you know, sort of, sort of outwit the censors with our, you know, sophisticated dialogue. And it worked, you know. And so I think for Kubrick, the big challenge was to kind of, I don't really be, it seems to me he like played that aspect up. If you look at like the, the preview, the coming attractions that they include like on the DVD, it's like, you know, the big thing was that. It was like, how will they make a movie of Lolita? How did they ever make a movie of Lolita? How did they ever make a movie of The performances in Lolita are all equally astounding, with James Mason expertly navigating one of the trickiest characters of his career, Shelley Winters delivering a vivid portrait of a wounded woman in need, and Peter Sellers letting loose, playing a multitude of distinctive and disturbingly funny characters. It'd be great for two normal guys like us to get together and talk about world events, you know, in a normal sort of way. Uh, we believe that this is equally important to prepare the pupils for the mutually satisfactory mating on the successful child rearing. That is what we believe. There's a darling little gun you got there. That's a darling little thing. This was the first of two Sellers-Kubrick collaborations. And what might have seemed on the outset an impossible pairing actually brought out the best in both. Sellers biographer Ed Sykov. Kubrick became aware over time that Sellers, you know, would be morose in the morning when he would show up at the, at the studio. He would be in a, in a semi-stupor, and it would take him a while to, to get revved up. Um, Kubrick would let him do it on his own and would coax him out of it, and sooner or later they would be ready to film, and then Sellers was brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the kind of collaboration they had. The other thing to keep in mind is that Kubrick, who was very, very pers- uh, per- persnickety about the way his actors 
spoke their lines and where they moved and what they did. You know, they had to do it according to a very rigid um, plan that Kubrick either did or didn't tell them. Uh, Sellers was free to improvise as much as he wanted. And that was a very wise decision because Sellers was primarily an intuitive kind of improvisational actor who, Mm -hmm. when given explicit directions, didn't necessarily wasn't necessarily capable of fulfilling them. Uh, Kubrick saw that right away and saw that Sellers was best, I mean, absolutely best, no no, no comparison, when left to his own devices to um, just let it fly. Oh, hi, good evening, Dr. Humbert. It starts. Good evening. Did you enjoy the performance? Very much. I, I enjoyed every minute of it. I wondered if the symbolism wasn't a bit heavy-handed at times. Yes, I know what you mean by that, but the boys and girls were so charming, weren't they? Oh, they were, weren't they? <laughs> and particularly little Lolita. She was yes. quite perfect. You must be awfully proud of her. Yes, I am. You know, her performance took me completely by surprise. She made me promise not to watch any of the rehearsals. Oh, they're so intense at that age. She must have worked awfully hard, though. No wonder you decided to suspend her piano lessons. After all, there are only so many... Beg your pardon, did you say suspend her piano lessons? Yes. Uh, do you play, Dr. Humbert? Well, hardly at all now. Didn't she have a lesson with you last Saturday afternoon? No. Nor the preceding Saturday? No, she called to say she was busy rehearsing. Busy rehearsing? But as a matter of fact, she hasn't had a lesson for, uh, Oh, let me see, four weeks. Oh, I do hope I haven't spoken out of turn. No, 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 not at all. I must have misunderstood. Uh, By the way, Dr. Humbert, there are so few people in Beardsley appreciate music. I was wondering sometime if perhaps you'd like to come around and I could play something for you. Yes, of course. Certainly I will. Thank you. Excuse me. Actress Shirley Douglas, who portrayed piano teacher Mrs. Starch in the film. They wanted me to be in the film, and they wanted me for a couple of parts, and... So I ended up being the teacher. Your, your initial impressions of, of, of Stanley Kubrick, what, what were those? I remember that in, that wonderful head of his and those eyes. Mm. And he was a very quiet person and very easy to talk to and very at ease with himself and with a, a stranger and an actor. Mm-hmm. And so he was very kind, and, and uh, there was just the feeling of someone who was trying to make a film and and liked you. I had so little experience with that big camera, mm-hmm. and I was nervous. And when you're in a situation where you're not comfortable, it's very difficult. And I think he, the person that really knew how uncomfortable I was was James Mason. Mm-hmm. And he was one of the loveliest people, actors, I've ever worked with. And he did everything in the world to help me. And when you're very young in a business, you remember so deeply and dearly people that uh, did that for you. Uh, and the same, uh, Stanley Kubrick was was similar. He he knew what he wanted, and he felt that you could do it. I didn't know how to interpret the way I could, a few years later, understand what he wanted in the same way. But he um, he 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 was just very quiet. He didn't do a lot of directing with me. When Lolita was released, 
It achieved substantial financial rewards at the box office, no doubt sparked by the controversy surrounding the property. With Lolita, Kubrick had shown a flair for the darkly comic and a bravery in exploring the most provocative of subjects. Both of these traits would be put to their ultimate test with his next film, Dr. Strangelove. I know you know this from the history books, but I grew up when there was something called the Cuban Missile Crisis. Film analyst Barry Krush. And I, I lived in Florida, Lakeland, Florida. And Florida was a pretty hot place to be because it wasn't very far from Cuba. So in the run-up to that, there was all this hysteria, this Cold War hysteria about possible nuclear attack on the United States, particularly Florida, since it was really close to Cuba. And I remember my dad had gotten some, actually, I guess they were suicide pills, if you want to call them that, uh, just in case it was radiation poisoning. So this is the state of mind that was going on back then, this real Cold War mentality. And I was about six years old, and I guess it was a couple years later, they took me to a drive-in movie, and the movie was Dr. Strangelove. And being only six years old, I wasn't really able to make the distinction between reality and fiction. So I thought I was watching a news program because it, it looked to me like what I just, you know, what I remember from the Cuban Missile Crisis and the final shot in the film when the guy uh, was riding the nuclear missile down to Earth. I mean, I thought that was a news report. And I fully expected the whole world to blow up at that time. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> So that was that was my first exposure. And, and, it, and it's all Slim Pickens' fault. <laughs> it's all Slim Pickens' fault. Doctor Strangelove has always been my favorite Kubrick film. I just um, I just think it's brilliant. Author of Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, Peter Biskind. If you were raised, grew up during the Cold War, as I was. Um, I mean, if you weren't raised in the Cold War atmosphere and the fear of the bomb and so forth, it's almost impossible to realize how liberating the humor it was and, and how daring it was to make fun of, um, uh, of the Cold, of Cold War, um, you know, sacrosanct, um, uh, you know, so-called truths, you know, and, and Kubrick was even afraid that, that they would prevent the film from coming out because it was a really um, radical, uh, subversive, transgressive um, film. You know, I, I think, you know, without that context, I think you can appreciate the film. The film holds up really well, but I, th but I think that it's impossible to, under to, un to sort of appreciate the full impact the film had. Mr. President, there are one or two points I'd like to make, if I may. Go ahead, General. One, our hopes for recalling the 843rd bomb wing are quickly being reduced to a very low order of probability. Two, in less than 15 minutes from now, the Ruskies will be making radar contact with the planes. Three, when they do, they are going to go absolutely ape, and they're going to strike back with everything they got. Four, if prior to this time, we have done nothing further to suppress their retaliatory capabilities, we will suffer virtual annihilation. 
Now. Five. If, on the other hand, we were to immediately launch an all-out and coordinated attack on all their airfields and missile bases, we'd stand a damn good chance of catching them with their pants down. Director Peter Himes. You know, there's this ridiculous um, notion, and, and certainly it's in Hollywood, that that uh, a funny movie has to... I remember a studio had said to me once, funny movie has to look funny. I was making a comedy at the time, um with Billy Crystal and he said it it doesn't look funny I said what do you mean it doesn't look funny he said well it doesn't have the look of a funny film it looks like The Godfather I said I wish it looked like The Godfather um, except a, a, a movie can't look funny it can only be funny mm-hmm. um, and I said what what do you think it should look like and he mentioned the name of a comedy that he had done and I said well that, that doesn't look funny that just looks like crap um and Kubrick made a movie like Strange Love with beautiful photography and and dramatic photography. Um, yet it was hysterically funny. In the midst of the Cold War, Stanley Kubrick's Doctor Strange Love, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb did the unthinkable. It dared to produce a comedy about impending nuclear holocaust. But it didn't start out that way. Producer James B. Harris. Once we got involved with Strangelove, uh, which we were going to do as a serious film, uh, it was based on a book called Red Alert, which was a serious piece and, and a great suspense story. Basically the same story. And uh, so Stanley got together with uh, the, the the author of Red Alert, Peter George. I don't know what his pen name or his real name or what, but they they did a screenplay, working on one. And I would I was out in California. I come into New York and and work with Stanley on it. Uh, and we you know when I got into the late hours at night, and we started to get a little silly and giddy, and we said, you know, how would this play as a comedy? You know, because Sometimes something so serious, you know, starts to you start to, to think of it as, as getting funny because, you know, like when they're having a meeting in the war room, we say, what ha- what what if they had to send out for, you know, takeouts, you know, Chinese takeout, <laughs> or, or, yeah, because it's getting late and everybody's hungry, you know, and then they have the guy with the apron on coming up taking the orders for everybody, you know, we started mm-hmm. laughing and, and say, Jesus, this would be terrific comedy. And then, nah, nah, we, yeah, why kill a good thing? We got a winner here. Let's 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 keep it straight. So we we finished the script uh, as a, as a suspense movie, and we owed a, we owed one more movie to uh, Seven Arts, which which financed uh, they financed Lolita. So so we had to, so I convinced uh, Elliot Hyman, who was head of Seven Arts at the time, to take on. Uh, Red Alert, I guess we called it Edge of Fear, Edge of Doom or something as as, this, as our next picture. And he didn't want to do it because he didn't like the idea of, of city swapping and, and uh, you know, had an ending like that. Uh, you know what I'm talking about when I say city swapping? You know, because we dropped the bomb on Russia, we had to we had to do something to, to let them get even with us for their, you know, to, to appease them. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, he... he 
I, I finally convinced him. I begged him to please, you know. So now he agreed. And and this was my chance to move on because I had now arranged the financing for 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 Edge of Fear, Edge of Doom, and and uh, Stanley was capable of doing it himself without me. <coughs> so I opened an office in California and started to to look to see if I could pursue a career as a film director. It wasn't long after that Cooper called me and said, "Do you remember when we were talking about doing this thing as a comedy?" And my heart sunk, you know. I, I, I figured, oh, my God. I, I leave him alone for 10 minutes, and he's going to just ruin his career. <laughs> and he said, yeah, yeah I, I, I think this thing plays much better as a comedy. I can I can make the same point as I want to make, even better in, in a satire or a comedy. He said, absolutely. Um, I, I come across a, a guy named Terry Southern, and mm. uh, he's, he's terrific. He's written, you know, he told me about the Magic Christian and uh, uh, question filigree and different books that, that Terry had written and I said yeah I know he's terrific he said yeah he and I are, are going to work on this thing and, and it's really going to be terrific and you know I just felt I felt my god you know I should have stuck around because now he's, he's going to you know if this thing doesn't work he's going to really have a, a, a lemon on his hands so it <laughs> turns out I think it's my favorite Kubrick picture uh, the way it turns out he, he you know just like the my my doubts about having Christiana sing the song at the end of Desiree. I had my doubts about whether this could work for for a full length feature. You know, I knew it could be funny in spots, but I didn't know how it could sustain itself until I saw it. <laughs> and then, wow! I mean, what a terrific movie it is! It, it's oh, it's, it, it's br- just unbelievably brilliant. great. It, it, you know, I could see this picture over and over again, which I have, and and enjoy it as much each time. I, mean, I just think it's so clever and so. So terrific. Now then, Dimitri, you know how we've always talked about the possibility of something going wrong with the bomb. The bomb, Dimitri. The hydrogen bomb. Well, now, what happened is um, one of our base commanders, he had a sort of, well, he went a little funny in the head. You know, just a little funny. And uh, he went and did a silly thing. Well, I'll tell you what he did. He ordered his planes to attack your country. Uh, Well, let me finish, Dimitri. Kubrick's approach to Dr. Strangelove echoed the themes of his other works, particularly in 2001, and his films that evoked the horrors of war. How could a species so intelligent and so evolved ultimately use that knowledge to destroy itself? I think it's always the case that, that Kubrick uh, wants you to be a little unsettled. Author of Stanley Kubrick, Seven Films Analyzed, Randy Rasmussen. He never wants you to feel a certain. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's part of the way he maybe viewed the world, um, don't be certain of anything because a lot of possibilities are there. Just when you're sure, I mean, all of the characters in, in Strange Love, I mean, think how, how how difficult it is for Buck Turgidson to even acknowledge that something might be wrong out there, out, out mm-hmm. in the world of, of uh, uh, you know, nuclear 
the, the arrangement he's got, SAC and, and the rest of it, um, it takes him a while to even believe it. It takes Major Kong a while to be able to imagine that, well, yeah, maybe this message they got, wing attack plan R, is real. They all fight it at first. Once again, Kubrick's collaboration with comic genius Peter Sellers produced magical results, as Sellers assumed the roles of Group Captain Lionel Mandrake, President Merkin Muffley, and Dr. Strangelove himself. Sellers' biographer, Ed Sykov. A lot of people think that Strangelove was mo- Strangelove's accent was modeled after Henry Kissinger. That's not true. Um, Kissinger was in the Kennedy White House as a foreign relations advisor of, of some sort, but he had no public rec- you know, reputation. So people mm-hmm. didn't know what he sounded like when he talked. The person he was based on the, the accent was based on was actually the photographer Ouija, who was hmm. brought on to the set of Strange Love to um, sort of help design some of the creepier lighting designs and to be a kind of morbid <laughs> presence on this on this film. Um, and and uh, Ouija said apparently to Sellers one day, um, he just sort of turned to him, he was German via Brooklyn, um, and he said, you know, something like, I'm a psychic. I would go to a moita before it was committed. And <laughs> Sellers heard that and just went with it and modeled it and played with it and tinkered with it and came up with the inimitable strange love voice. When you merely wish to bury bombs, there's no limit to the size. After that, they are connected to a gigantic complex of computers. Now then, a specific and clearly defined set of circumstances under which the bombs are to be exploded, is programmed into a tape memory bank. <laughs> a single roll of tape can store all the information... What kind of a name is that? That ain't no crowd name, is it, Stanley? He changed it when he became a citizen. It used to be McVectic Lieber. Uh, a crowd by any other name, I think. Is that the whole point of the doomsday machine is lost. If you keep it a secret, why didn't you tell the world, eh? He liked Stanley Kubrick and really wanted to work with him again. I believe that they were in talks of some sort. Maybe it was just casual. Maybe Kubrick was just humoring him. I don't know. But towards the end of Seller's life, um, became very, very strange. And he was talking about doing something with, with Kubrick and Kubrick was interested enough in it or perhaps just kind enough to you know, to sellers to, to talk about it with him. Um, but, you know, it, these were two movies that came, came out, that were made and came out at just the right time for both of them. You know, yeah. Kubrick was just, just sort of reaching the stars, and so was Sellers. And the combination was, was magic, like you said. It was just, um, and, and the movies are, are, are as alive today as the day that they were released. Alongside Sellers... Kubrick had assembled another stellar cast, and again proved to be a patient and diplomatic presence on set. Actor Shane Rimmer portrayed Captain Ace Owens in the film. One expected anything and everything from Kubrick. Um, and, and, but this one thing that you were guaranteed of was it was going to be a good picture. Mm-hmm. I mean, he uh, when we got to it, when we got the, uh, the okay, and we all reported to uh, Shepard and Studios, which is just outside London. We really, I mean, we knew, we knew the man by reputation and by, you know, his talent and what he'd put on screen. We didn't know him. 
really, and you know, you you, uh, you think a man who's reached that particular strata might might be a bit difficult to deal with. He was amazingly kind mm. and available, and uh, in the studio on the studio floor, he had people coming at him from. He had the sound men. He had the art director. He had uh, everybody uh, who was involved in the uh, in the picture coming at him because, first of all, he was a uh, um, somebody who could probably answer any question you cared to throw at him. Uh, and secondly, he just allowed everybody to have what was on their mind, say it, and then back to work. We were the same. He said, "Look, don't worry." The scene was that he had a tremendous platoon of big-name actors. He had Peter Sellers. He had Keenan Wynn. He had uh, George C. Scott, Sterling Hayden. I mean, there was a tremendous, that was a real power pack. He had a, a tremendous lineup of talent there. He was, and so he said, look, I want you as a rookie crew if you fall over your, you know, whatever, and you knock over a chair or you give the wrong ultimate reading, don't worry about it. That's what I want. I want uh, the the, uh, the mission is in charge of pros. You're a bunch of rookies, and uh, I really don't care what you do in that plane. You've got to be there. You've got to act like rookies, but I don't care what extremes you go to. So that was it. Survival kit contents check. In them you will find... 145 caliber automatic, two boxes of ammunition, four days concentrated emergency rations, one drug issue containing antibiotics, morphine, vitamin pills, pep pills, sleeping pills, tranquilizer pills, one miniature combination Russian phrase book and Bible, $100 in rubles, $100 in gold, nine packs of chewing gum, one issue of prophylactics, three lipsticks, three pair of nylon stockings. Shoot, a fella could have a pretty good weekend in Vegas with all that stuff. So he, he had a knack of loosening any binds that you might have uh, put around yourself. I just said, let's go. You had this feeling that you uh, you shouldn't not say something that might have occurred to you, no matter whether you'd been in the business for a year or 20 years or whatever it was. He was that kind of man that uh, it was so approachable. It was uh, an absolutely del a, a delight. And we were on the picture for 13 weeks, cooped wow. up in wow. <laughs> cooped up this suspended bomber. So, so, even, so even then he was... Uh, he he was shooting multiple takes, obviously to to find what he wanted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, I mean he didn't get as bad as some later on, but I mean he. Um, I was in the picture with Warren Beatty where he went up to seventy takes. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. He didn't get anywhere near that. But um, yes, he did, and he and he made that perfectly clear. He said, "Don't worry if there's a if there's, if there's a bobble in one of the takes." He said, "I got lots of film in here, and we just keep going till we get it." Mm -hmm. But don't get too concerned. Uh, uh, I'll tell you when the bubble is uh, something that we can't deal with. So he was open. He was very open, and uh, th that talent was reaching out across the studio all the time. He put on one tremendous filmic show for us, and we 
we're, we were, we were uh, absolutely astonished. As I say, we were on ground level. He was at any level <laughs> you could name, and the, and the full impact of the picture mm. was really quite extraordinary. At the conclusion of Dr. Strangelove, mankind has been obliterated by nuclear holocaust. At the opening of his next film, Mankind Begins Again. Dr. Strangelove, and the work that came before it, had firmly established Kubrick as one of the boldest, brashest, and bravest of film artists. Audiences and critics both viewed Kubrick as a colossal talent who could take the most challenging material and translate it into an unforgettable cinematic experience. But even they could not have predicted the breadth of his ambition and ability. For in his next film, Kubrick would not only accomplish the impossible, but in the process, he would change the face of an art form.